Hello, this is Michael Stone, the host of Conversations. We're committed to bringing you leading-edge thinkers in the areas of environmental restoration, social justice, and spiritual fulfillment. On our program, we look for positive solutions to local and global issues that leave you touched, moved, and inspired to action. Our weekly guests include local and global experts and concerned citizens working together to heal the wounds that separate, alienate, and marginalize people. Welcome to Conversations. This is your host, Michael Stone, and I am thrilled and overwhelmed with the possibility of today's interview. Dr. Alexander Wendt is a Mershon Professor of International Security and Professor of Political Science at The Ohio State University. Wendt is interested in philosophical aspects of social science with special reference to international relations. His recent book, Quantum Mind and Social Science, explores the implications for social science of the possibility that consciousness is a macroscopic quantum mechanical phenomena, in effect that human beings are walking wave functions. Alex, welcome to Conversations. Well, thank you, Michael, for having me on the show. I'm delighted to be here. Very important work you're doing, and I'm excited to be sharing you with our listeners. I thought I'd start out just asking you, you wrote a seminal book in international relations and then jumped into a completely different field, maybe not completely different, but but spent 10 years of your life writing this very controversial book. What uh, had you do this? Um, Well, yeah, strategically, they may not have been a great decision. I don't know. But um, no, I think that after the first book, I was I had it took me almost 10 years to write that book, too. And um, I knew all the problems with it before it even was published. I was kind of bored with the idea. I had every I said everything I wanted to say. And in a way, the new book, the quantum book, is an attempt to rewrite the first book because there's a lot of continuities there. But I basically realized the first book was too Newtonian or something, and I decided I needed to do something more quantum. And so um, the two books are related, but um, but they, they are very different in that way. Yeah. The book is Quantum Mind and Social Science, Unifying Physical and Social Ontology. What does that mean to you? Well, it means trying to, I mean, the social sciences have never fit into our picture of the universe, into the scientific picture of the universe. Um, And they've struggled for status in part for that reason. You know, they just don't fit and they don't fit because of consciousness and because, you know, we have experience and so on. So the idea is to try to, through the mind-body problem, which is kind of the main focus of the book, try to bring physics and the physical world or bring human beings into the physical world, but in a new way, a new kind of physics, not the old style physics, but the new physics. It's interesting. We've had a lot of people on the show talking about mindfulness and consciousness, and yet no one seems to be able to define consciousness. They're at a loss to be able to actually define it. And you say in your book, first of all, that Social science is based on a mistake, on this Newtonian paradigm. Talk a little bit about that and how the shift is happening with the quantum perspective. Well, the social sciences are are basically are born in the 19th century at the height of the Newtonian um, you know, electromagnetic perception of the world. And, and they really, at the time, they looked to physics and physicists for models for how to do science, what does science mean, what does the world look like, and so on. And so a lot of the, the infrastructure, the basic I- foundational ideas of social science come straight out of classical mechanics and Newtonian thinking in the 19th century. And, and somehow the quantum revolution passed social science by. Um, and so we still work with those Newtonian assumptions deep in our conceptual ways of thinking. Um, so um, the quantum stuff is, you know, it's pretty new. The idea has been around for a long time, but it's always been a very fringe idea that somehow is connected to social science because the, the long-standing view has been that quantum mechanics is only relevant to subatomic particles right. and it's not relevant to human beings. Um, and there are good reasons for that. That's not a crazy argument. Um, 
but my assumption and the assumption of the many people, I, I mean, it's not really my argument in the book. It's an argument drawn from a lot of other people that I kind of collected together. Um, and the common assumption of all these people is that actually quantum mechanics does scale up to the human level and it really plays a key role in explaining consciousness. So let's talk about consciousness itself for a minute and talk about the hard problem, the mind-body problem where we are making this assumption that a piece of meat can be conscious and it just doesn't quite uh, comprehend. <laughs> well, I think... Um, the, uh, it depends on what you mean by consciousness, of course, um, and that's, as you pointed out, very debatable, but the way in which I'm using it and the people who talk about the so-called hard problem of consciousness, what they mean is experience, the feeling of subjective experience. So, and the assumption is that computers don't have that, human beings do. And um, the dominant view of the mind, though, in, in, in science and philosophy is that it's just a machine, basically, a very complicated machine. It's a very Newtonian, classical mechanical picture. And somehow that machine spits out consciousness. But it's not clear why or how or what the consciousness is for. Um, and that's sort of the hard problem is that once you've described the brain, if you could describe the brain perfectly in a physics or neuroscience description, you would never see consciousness at all. You won't see it. It will be because it's invisible. Mm -hmm. um, so the idea is how to bring that in to our understanding of the mind is sort of a central problem. Um, and I've forgotten the rest of your question, but I'll, I'll stop there and, and see where you want to go. So just to to say the 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 standard uh, model of consciousness is in the Newtonian Cartesian mechanistic or deterministic model, whatever you call it. They don't have one of consciousness itself, but it's, well, t tell us what the, yeah. how that affects consciousness. And then if we were looking at it from a quantum perspective, where, how, how do those two contrast, the two, two yeah. looking That's at? That's good. No, I think, I think that um, the failure, the inability of mainstream neuroscience and philosophy to explain consciousness, they're, they're completely baffled by it. They have no idea. They themselves admit they can't explain it. Some of them even now say that consciousness is an illusion, right? And then that's just, to yeah. me, absurd. But I mean, that's where their paradigm has taken them. Because um, it so, won't fit their model, eh? Yeah, if, if it doesn't right. fit the model, out with, out with what you're trying to explain. So it's, it's kind of insane. Um, and so social science has inherited this, this skepticism toward consciousness. Social scientists never talk about consciousness, hardly ever. They don't talk about subjective experience very much either. They treat people as if they're basically machines, as computers. Um, and the mind is just a giant computer, a very complicated machine, and it engages in cognition and everything else. And um, so in a way, it's almost as if the mainstream view does not really see what human beings, that we're alive. It treats, as if, it treats us as if we're dead matter, in effect, obeying the laws of Newtonian mechanics which were devised to describe the motions of dead matter. <laughs> they weren't devised to describe human behavior. They were described to describe the motions of planets and, and stuff like that. So, um, so the quantum view, I think, is, is able to, there's room within the quantum perspective for consciousness in a way that there is not in the classical worldview. Mm -hmm. there, and there are various places where it could go, but there's room in there. Um, and if you can integrate consciousness into quantum physics, I think that leads to a picture of human beings as we're not classical computers, we're quantum computers. And quantum computers happen to be conscious. And that's one they actually, we're, everyone's racing to develop a quantum computer these days. And I don't think they realize that they're actually going to create life, I think, when they do that, mm -hmm. or create consciousness. Um, I mean, that'd be my extrapolation from my argument anyway. Right, right. Maybe not having sex and babies, but... Uh, yes, maybe not that much. <laughs> Hopefully not yet. So, so. Yeah, that gets a little scary. I want to just tell our listeners that I want to get through the science of this, but the implications of your book and what we're talking about are profound for every one of the 
issues that are really important for the war, separation, climate change. And so we're going to go through a little bit of the science here and talk about it. And, and I'm here to learn about it myself. In the later part of the show, we're going to really talk about the consequences of this new paradigm of thinking and how it works. So one of the things just to start with is I think it's important for people to understand the idea of the CCP, the, the causal closure of physics and how the mechanistic and the quantum models relate to that. Yeah, no, the basic idea of this principle, and it's, I think, actually very widely held in all the sciences, um, is that everything in the, in the world, in reality, at the end of the day, everything is physical. It has to be physically physical somewhere. So even thoughts and feelings in our head, um, they don't feel physical because we're experiencing them, but even they have to have a physical basis, and that's in the brain, presumably. So everything is physical. But then the question is, well, what kind of physical? Do we mean classical physical, which are just, you know, little tiny little rocks, basically, giant particles or something, or do we mean quantum physical? And that's a completely different way of thinking about what physicality is. For the classical view, physical means material, you know, straight up material, like a rock, you know. For quantum, physical does not have to mean straight up material. It can mean material plus mental. It can include consciousness. And that's the attraction of the quantum view of uh, the physical universe, uh, to me, is that there's room for consciousness in there. Hmm. So it is a solution to that hard problem we were yes. talking about then. That's right. So most of social science, pretty much all of social science, is based on this deterministic or mechanistic point of view that we're objects in a world of objects and that we're just bouncing off each other and we're in what Alan Watts called the skin-encapsulated egos, just, you know, um, mm -hmm. bouncing off each, each other. And in quantum... Social science, you call it based on holism, that the parts uh, exist as a whole. They're not independent, like in the mechanistic view. Can you talk about the impact of these different views on human behavior and agency and how we get along, basically? Yeah, no, I think, and I think it's easiest to start with the classical view. And, and, you know, for hundreds of years now, ever since Thomas Hobbes and other political philosophers came up with these ideas, they always start with the state of nature, right? The human beings exist in the state of nature and they somehow form a social contract and they create society. Um, but there's this assumption that in the state of nature, we're all completely separate, we're all individuals, and therefore we're kind of selfish and conflictual and competitive and all that. And so that picture of the, of the beginning of the world in a sense, which is Hobbes's picture, is a picture of society where conflict is the norm, really. That the starting point for everything is conflict, competition, war, killing, and all that. And it's a very individualistic picture of, of, the society, of society. And the quantum view sees, would have, if, if it, it wouldn't go with the state of nature idea to begin with, but if it did, it wouldn't be populated with isolated individuals. It'd be populated with families, perhaps. Um, people that are existing always in relation to somebody else, that no man is an island or no person is an island, right? That we, we are what we are because of who we're with. Um, and so the famous example of Hegel is, you know, the master and the slave. You can't be a master unless somebody's a slave. So that's a way in which two people are what in quantum theory you would call entangled. They can't be separated. Whereas in the classical picture, you can completely separate people. So even though we have different skins, well, our skin is a barrier to being completely joined, obviously. Um, in the quantum view, our minds can be entangled. They can, they can extend beyond our skin in a sense, and they're entangled through language, through things like master-slave relations, and everything else in society. Um, and in the classical view, it's a, it's a world of competition, um, and actually, I guess the final thing I would say is that whereas in the classical view, the default condition for human life is conflict and competition, in the quantum view, it's a much more cooperative picture. Mm -hmm. The math shows us apparently that your default position would be a situation where people would, be, would tend to cooperate. And that's in fact what economists have, obser have observed in the lab 
is that people cooperate much more than they should according to standard economic theory. Hmm. Uh, so this is very puzzling to the economists, but that's because they've got the wrong, they got the wrong physics. They got a classical view. If they would take a quantum view, I bet anything, their predictions would match the data and there would be no puzzle anymore. Hmm. So the Hobbesian view is really <laughs> that uh, people are evil and you can't trust them and that you need a monarch in order to uh, yes, yes. control the masses, which is uh, what a lot of um, uh, people in power right now, I won't mention any particular names. <laughs> it's, a fantasy. it's a fantasy for some people, I know. So. <laughs> yeah. So... Um, so talk about the two views of consciousness and relationship and the, um, how you've gotten to the panpsychist perspective and why is that important and, and why does it matter? Well, um, I mean, the quantum idea of consciousness, and this is really Stuart Hameroff's idea and other people, and not, certainly not my idea, but you know, their, their intuition or their hypothesis is that that um, consciousness is not something that only arises at extremely high levels of complexity like the human brain. Quite the contrary, that consciousness is built into the fabric of matter all the way down. Um, and that's actually the easiest way to make sense of what consciousness is. And quantum theory supports that view. I mean, it doesn't demand that view, but it supports that view. So that's, that's where things start getting debated is when you get into the quantum theory stuff. But anyway, um, so panpsychism is a natural implication, and there are quite a few quantum theorists who are panpsychists um, because they see the implication that one way to interpret what's happening at the quantum level is that consciousness is everywhere, experience is everywhere. Alfred North Whitehead was a, you know, not a quantum guy really, but another you know, prominent panpsychist in the 20th century. And, um, and this all course also means then all animals, all organisms, plants, everybody's conscious. But in my view, that would not include things like rocks, glaciers, um, you know, inorganic, non-living stuff. It only applies to things that are living or to subatomic particles, which is what everything is made up in the end. Hmm. So some panpsychists want to say that thermostats are conscious. I don't think thermostats are conscious, um, but I do think that plants are conscious, so because they're living. So one, one of the attractions for me of this panpsychist view and apolism more generally is that there's a real continuity between human beings and all of our life forms. We're just, we just happen to be smarter than the other life forms, but otherwise we're basically the same. Um, they're just as conscious as we are. <laughs> I'm not so sure we're smarter, Alex. Oh, okay. There's I a, beg the question uh, there. Okay. That's, we'll <laughs> leave that open. Fair enough. Yeah. <laughs> So when you're talking about panpsychists, it's basically that every cell has a mind. Maybe it's not as developed, but everything has mind imbued in it, which is very, very similar to the shamanic or the indigenous perspective that everything's alive in the universe. Yeah. And of course, they would take it further and say that the rocks are alive, that they hold the history of everything went that went on for millions of years before that, that they have that capacity. So I'm wondering if panpsychists, they just won't go that far if it's not a living thing that, that they, that they consider living because from a, from, like I said, a shamanic perspective, everything is alive. You know, the air is alive, the fire is alive and all the elements and yeah no i mean i think well i think some panpsychists would bite the bullet and say that rocks are conscious and alive and and so on and, and some of them have done that in print um you know i guess my view is a bit more traditional it's a bit more i guess scientific hopefully that's not a negative thing but a positive thing it's it's a new kind of science but um so i guess i would probably say that from my perspective I would draw a line between things that are alive and not alive. Okay. Um, although the boundary may be kind of fuzzy. Um, so. Well, that's probably a limb you wouldn't want to step out on anyway, given your profession. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm a political scientist. I don't have to explain the origin of life, I guess, necessarily. <laughs> right. Yeah, so. Talk about the idea that human beings are walking wave functions with the freedom to choose 
who we can be at any given moment. That's a pretty radical statement. Yeah, it's a view that is, I think most people would say crazy um, because most people think that quantum stuff can't scale up to the brain anyway. So um, the whole idea, I've heard people laugh when I give the, say that in, in public, people laugh sometimes. And, um, but I'm serious. I think that, and that's not, again, it's not my view only. It's, it's a number of people who've argued this. And, you know, I guess the way to think about it is that the standard model, again, the classical Newtonian mechanical model, assumes that the that your brain is always in a definite state. At any given second, the, the musical chairs have stopped and everything is somewhere in your brain and it's in a definite state and it just is what it is. To basically like the software in a computer. Um, and then you turn the crank and the you know, the brain spits out behavior and stuff like that. And um, it's a very mechanical process, um, very classical process. And the idea of a wave function is really that um, in the case of subatomic particles, the particles dissolve in a sense that what the physicists have found is that at the bottom of the universe, in a sense, there are no well-defined particles. They don't have well-defined properties. Um, they don't even have well-defined identities. That doesn't mean everything is the same, but everything is in a wave function. It's a, really a set of probabilities more than something, anything that's definite. So in a way, thinking of the brain or the human being as a walking wave function is really to say, instead of just a giant complicated machine, um, what we are is a huge set of, we're always, a, we're walking potentiality, really. That we're able at any moment, we have a lot of freedom because our wave function gives us lots of possibilities for how to act. And then you have to assume free will, and I've got a story about free will in the book, but um, my view is that you know our will is constantly so what's called collapsing the wave function, which is to say, taking all those possibilities about how I can act at any given moment, and I act a certain way. And that's my human free choice. It's not deterministic, um, but, but I could have acted otherwise. In but the that action is the wave collapse? Yes, yeah, the action is the wave collapse, yes. Um, and in the classical view, it's hard to make sense of the idea that you could have acted otherwise. If it's all deterministic, well, you're going to do what you're going to do and it doesn't really matter because you know because you don't have any choice in the matter and now there's a lot of debate on the, it's a very complicated debate among the philosophers and i don't want to you know make their view the classical view seem um you know silly but um i think they have a real problem with free will and, and human action in general and what to make of it yeah yeah so um the, well let's just for a second talk about the implications of that. I want to get more into how these things relate to people. The question of free will, for instance, um, you know, how to, from a social scientist perspective, the fact that um, mechanistic view is that we don't have free will compared to the quantum view that we do, how do you see that unfolding in the human world? Well, I think most social scientists try to set, step around the problem of free will because it's just a big mess for them. Um, you won't, most social scientists actually don't talk or use the phrase free will very often. Um, but they'll, since social science is very probabilistic, it's all statistics, right? Nothing's, um, nothing's known with any certainty people just say, well, free will is part of the error term. It's where, you know, whatever scientists can't explain, that's free will. And that's what the typical attitude of social scientists is. And that doesn't seem to me very satisfactory. From a mo our moral codes, our legal codes, all assume free will. Um, and I think it's important for science to have an account of that that makes sense of free will instead of denying that it's existing. Um, and of course, there are many people who deny that free will exists. Of course, it's a debate on both sides. But, but you know, I think that for me, you know, the quantum view. Now, the quantum view has its own problems with free will because some people say, well, quantum theory is all about randomness, and free will can't be random. But so you have to sort of assume that what's happening in the quantum world is actually not random at all. It's actually purposeful. But those particles down there, they're purposefully collapsing themselves in a certain way. 
Um, so not only does consciousness go all the way down, but so does purpose in a sense. So does will go all the way down. Mm. Um, and, but to me, that's a way to rescue human responsibility and also to empower people. Well, doesn't that relate to coherence, though? We had Irvin Laszlo on last year, and we're talking about the importance of coherence and that when we move to a quantum perspective, can, can you speak to a little bit about if, if we're all connected and everything is inseparable, then that's coherent. And the other, when we're out of phase with that, it's decoherent. I don't know if I'm using those terms properly, but I think so. Take off on that idea. Well, it's, I don't understand the, the coherent stuff very well myself. I mean, that's, but that's what the quantum consciousness idea depends on, which is that in the brain somehow these zillions of quantum interactions that are going on are all coherent in some way, that they're all in a sense on the same page and they're working in unison and synchrony with each other. And that's what accounts for the unity of our experience um, as opposed to having a zillion experiences at once There's the unity. And that's the physical basis of that is this idea of quantum coherence, which is a very special condition. Particles are not always in coherence with each other. In fact, usually they're not. They're only in living things are they coherent, basically. And in my book, I make the claim, following a few other people, that basically quantum coherence not only is the basis of consciousness, it's the basis of life. And that if you have coherence, you've got life. And if you've got life, you've got consciousness. So it's all the same kind of thing. And decoherence, then, is what happens every single moment you're acting you're briefly collapsing your wave function, you're decohering it. So in, in the state of coherence, you're in this wave function world where anything is possible, basically. And then in, when you act into the world or you speak, you're, you're decohering yourself, but then you quickly recover your coherence. And so a body somehow is constantly decohering and recohering constantly through life until the organism dies. So you're taking... From the multitude of potentiality, you're taking one. That's really the decoherence there. You've chosen one thing out of infinite potentiality. Yeah, although in fairness, I guess the wave function is, the idea is that it has a certain structure, so it only allows certain, only certain kinds of things are possible, probably. So, you know, it's not possible that I'll become a champion weightlifter, for example. That's not part of my wave function. It can be a fantasy, but it's not a reality. Whereas, you know, for someone built differently than I could, I am, they maybe could make that part of their wave function. But, but yes, it is really about every single choice is a collapse of your own wave function and you're responsible for it and you're making your life that way. And that's how we make our lives um, is by collapsing ourselves in a sense into more something more concrete. But isn't that a demonstration of free will? Yes. Yeah, exactly. And I use a phrase that I, I don't know if it's Nietzsche who first said it, but I got it from somebody that, you know, that life is a work of art. And I, I like that kind of way of thinking about it. And the quantum view, I think, is very much quantum view of free will suggests that there's a lot of play in life. That life is really about play, partly. Even when you're working hard, you're really playing in a way. This that's how I, my work. I mean, I love my job so much. Maybe I just I'm playing when I work. But. But I, I don't know. I was going off on a tangent there. So okay. anyway, you brought a play, though. I, I reminds me of the game theory and the uh, move from, you know, in social science and the traditional view of game theory, and then the looking at it, the quantum game theory. What is game theory, and how do those two, the classical and the quantum view, come together in the new way of looking at game theory? Well, game theory has been around since the 30s, um, and it's, an, it's one way to think about it. It's a very economic way of thinking. It assumes people are rational. It assumes they have certain beliefs, they have certain desires, and they're interacting strategically with each other, trying to, to beat each other in some game. Um, and depending on what the game is, that affects the kinds of outcomes you get. And um, game, theorists, game theory has been heavily studied by social scientists all over the place and used in lots of different ways. And it's a very powerful tool, traditional game theory is. A tool for? For uh, analyzing any kind of social interaction. So it's a very widely used. And quantum game theory is, is, is another, is game theory, 
but it changes all the assumptions in traditional game theory are classical assumptions. They assume that the actors have well-defined properties. They assume the actors are completely separate from each other. There's no quantum entanglement. So there's all these uh, individualistic and classical Newtonian assumptions built into the fabric of traditional game theory. Um, and those assumptions generate certain kinds of results. And what quantum game theory does is it takes all those basic assumptions of game theory and it does what's called quantize them. It, it gives the quantum versions of those assumptions, which are much more flexible and because they're wave functions. It I mean, they have a wave function dimension. So they allow the players suddenly don't have well-defined identities. They don't have well-defined preferences or well-defined beliefs. And it all depends on who they're with and what the context is and all that. And that's what collapses the wave function. So what, long story short, what the quantum game theorists have found is that when you model human interaction with quantum game theory and think about it that way, it, it actually predicts much more cooperation between people. And that's what the experimental economists and psychologists have actually found in the lab, and I mentioned this earlier, is that people behave, they cooperate much more than we should. Mm. And according to the classical view. So the classical view is saying, don't cooperate, don't cooperate, don't cooperate. That's irrational. You're going to get taken advantage of. And the quantum view is saying, well, actually, maybe you can cooperate here. Um, and so it's a maybe much more be in your best interest. Yeah, it could be in your best interest. Right. So it's a much more optimistic, not much more, but more optimistic picture of human sociability. Mm -hmm. it, it's, it's basic picture of human beings is that we're social animals and not loners like bear. bears are loners right bears are not social animals so um, the classical view is kind of you know humans are like bears and i just don't buy it i think we're social and the quantum game theory supports that view well let's look at reality i mean first of all we live inside of a story and that story is made up by experiences in the past that created certain beliefs and assumptions that our actions are mostly based, particularly from the subconscious, on things from the past. But all of that, the container for that whole view is language, that we live inside of language. As Heidegger would say, language is the house of being, the ontological way we see the world. So talk about quantum entanglement and language and non-local causation, I think it is in social life. Yeah, well, so non-local, I'll start at the end. I mean, non-local causation is um, one of the great mysteries of the quantum world. You know, in the classical world, you basically, all causation involves transfer of energy, basically. So you have to hit something, boom, it goes off in some direction. And so it requires contact, in a sense, in the classical view. And in the quantum world, you can things happen where there's no contact. There's, there's correlations, but no actual contact. And this is called non-local causation because it, it's, there seems to be a kind of causation there, but it's not local in the sense of requiring connection. Mm -hmm. And in the human world, it, of course, it was long assumed that none of this quantum stuff applied to the human scale. Um, only actually, on the micro, only on the micro. Only in the micro, on the micro. Right, it all decoheres once you get to the macro level. That's the standard view. Um, but my own view, and here I'm following a lot of people who are interested, getting interested in quantum theory and language, um, and their claim is that, that language actually has many, many quantum properties. That the words, the meaning of words, for example, is extremely dependent on the context in which the words are used. Yeah. Um, that's very much a quantum view. Um, and there are many other, and that, um, you know, the meaning of master depends on the word meaning of the word slave. Um, so there's all these entanglements among words and language. Um, so basically language is an, a hugely entangled system of meaning um, or potential meaning anyway. And then people use this structure of potential meaning when they speak to communicate clearly, but they're, when they're doing so, they're connected non-locally. So um, an example I like to use with, with friends of mine is, which is a famous example in philosophy um, is what happened to Socrates' wife, Xantippe, when Socrates was forced to drink the hemlock and commit suicide. And what happened to her, even though she was presumably miles away, she was instantly a widow, instantly, right? 
Now, it may have taken a few days for her to get the bad news, um, but nonetheless, she was instantly a widow. And to me, that's an example of non-local causation. And that's all because they shared a normative system, a set of beliefs of what it means to be married, husband and wife, blah, blah, blah. And that's, an, that's a system of entangled meaning that they were both part of. And when one of those links is broken because Socrates dies, that instantly changes the characteristics of the other person. Not completely, you know, Xantippe's still alive and she's still mostly herself, but now she's a widow. On, but the point is that context gives meaning. Right, the context gives all the meaning. Um, and even though it may take time for the message to travel, the fact that there's a message at all to communicate is because they share a certain meaning. So it's a very holistic view of language. Some people think of language, you know, it's made up of parts, you know, each individual word, you put them together in sentences and you build paragraphs. The quantum view is the opposite, basically, that the meaning of the whole shapes the parts more than anything else. Mm. Yeah, brilliant. You know, I, I'm just, I, what, I, what I'm stopping at and looking at is the amazing possibility that this holds and then the thought that Will we ever, it's been a hundred years since quantum thinking came into our world and still pretty much everyone and all of our institutions and all of our education is based in this mechanistic objects in a world objects perspective. Mm -hmm. And I'm thinking how can, you know, we somehow help to, build that in. I mean, I struggled so much in trying to understand not even the mathematics, but just the descriptions in your book so that I could kind of embed that in myself. And I think a lot of that was the resistance of my Newtonian thinking, the way I viewed it, the way I looked at it. But I want to look at the possibilities too, because I think when people see the possibilities of this they'll be interested in doing the hard work, you know, what, what, um, when you look at that, what does the world look at? What, you know, like from that perspective in terms of social interactions? Yeah, no, that's a really good question. And I guess maybe one thing to emphasize up front is that there are many roads to the destination that, that the quantum view leads to and that you're talking about. Um, you were talking about shamanism before and indigenous knowledges um you know there are certain forms of traditional mainline philosophy that are are leading in the same direction too so you don't have to do this the quantum way the, the virtue of the quantum way is that it gives you the the power of physics right and the, the authority of physics it's not then just a bunch of people cooking up strange beliefs you've got the physical stuff there to back you up but the point is is that a lot of people have been pioneering a transformation of consciousness for a long time before they ever heard of quantum theory. Okay, so the quantum theory, I think, does reinforce it. And this actually relates to a paper I'm, I'm working on now, um, which looks at what are the con for three centuries now, we've been teaching our children, teaching ourselves that the social world obeys the laws of Newtonian mechanics. Basically, it's not, not usually quite crudely put that crudely. But that's what it amounts to, the, the kind of social science as a Newtonian perspective. And we've been not just teaching our graduate students that, we've been teaching our kindergartners that. Mm -hmm. And so we've basically for three centuries been producing human beings that think of themselves, at least subconsciously, as if they're classical machines, that they obey the laws of classical mechanics, that what it means to be rational is to obey the laws of classical mechanics, what it means to, I mean, everything. And I think that the consequences, if in fact human beings are actually quantum beings, then we've been teaching them a mistake, for three, a huge mistake for three centuries. Teaching ourselves a huge mistake, which I think is basically producing false consciousness, and I think is deeply responsible for our alienation from each other and from the natural world around us, because that's the Newtonian picture is one of alienation. So the paper that I'm writing on looks at the consequences of this kind of classical training or pedagogy on the human race, in a sense, and what it, how the human beings would look different if they embraced a quantum pedagogy and saw themselves as having quantum consciousness. 
um, I think it will be much more empowered, agentic, and transformational conception of human beings than you get in this kind of zombie or computer image um, that the classical view has. Yeah, I hope there are more more ways to embed this in our psyche than having to go through the math personally. Yeah, yeah I, don't, well, I don't do the math either. I can't do the math. I can't do the math. But, but what's surprising is that you can learn a lot. There are a lot of many excellent, much easier to read than my book, excellent introductions to quantum theory for yeah. sort of lay people probably, you know, probably defined. And so and they don't have involved any math at all. So let's say we take this organic, unified, interdependent, uh, monistic kind of perception of the world. If we just tried it on like a hat and we related to the world as though we were inseparable from each other mm-hmm. and, and life. When I look at that, well, we wouldn't we were wanting to have wars we certainly wouldn't be spoiling our own nest. Um, You know, we would be looking to have a real democratic kind of way of being in the world. And I think a lot of psychologists and psychiatrists would be instantly out of business if we could Mm -hmm. adapt this perspective. What are some of the basic things like inseparability Another another thing is the subject-object separation, the difference. I think much of the struggle that people have and the anxiety that people have is they want to have perfection and they want to get it right and they want to be right. But that's a function of thinking that there's a objective view of something rather than the kind of relaxing that comes from recognizing that it's all subjective and that you can intend and you can use free will and you can have something happen, but it takes the weight off when you actually recognize some of these principles, like what if we embraced uncertainty, which would be a quantum thing to do, right? Yeah, no, that's right. And, and I mean, you just said a lot of things there. I mean, um, I'm not even sure where to begin. It 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 is. Um, I liked how you put. It takes a bit of the weight off. It's a much more relaxed view of objectivity. Mm-hmm. Now, there's debate among quantum people about what does objectivity mean in quantum theory, and I don't, you know, understand the details. Um, but it's clear that it's a much less rigid view of objectivity than you get in the standard picture. And and some people would even say that's really what it is is inner subjective agreement is what objectivity is. So it's really all about subjectivity. But it's not just subjective right? Because the world does have a certain stability around us. And that's because we all kind of agree that the world is what it is. But I think that a big, you know, to me, the the key idea and and what's, I think, important from an ethical standpoint, and also just from an ontological and descriptive point of view, is this idea that human beings are not inseparable. And there's a phrase that I I borrow from, I believe he's Croatian philosopher, um, Daniel Kolak, he says, I am you, okay? And, you know, and from a classical point of view, that makes no sense. I can't be you, you're you, and I'm me. In the quantum view, you know, if our minds are entangled, there is a sense in which at the wave function level, I am you when we're together and interacting in our co-presence, we are each other. And so it's a deeply relational view of, of and connectedness um, view of, hu- of human beings that is very different than the standard view. And I think much more optimistic if I have to live in the dead classical world, what's the point? You know, it's a world of death. I mean, it's funny. I was thinking the other day that, you know, our whole civilization is built on carbon, right? And isn't carbon basically just death? So our, our civilization is feeding on death in a literal sense. And that's how it sustains itself. And, and that's, I don't know, maybe that's inevitable for the time being, but it's not a very quantum way of thinking. I don't think so. Yeah. Well, our agriculture system is based on death, big agriculture. Yes, that's our also. Our political system is based on death. So it, it makes sense that our energy system would be based on death also. Well, and it's ironic, or maybe it's coincidental, that the Newtonian worldview has no space for life or consciousness in it. Yeah. They can't, they don't, they can't explain life either. 
that, that they think they're getting close, but I don't think so. I mean, what do I, just I, this, I just had this thought, Alex, you know, from a mindfulness perspective that, well, quantum theory would say that I'm nothing and I'm everything. And so if I'm nothing and I'm everything, then I don't have to worry so much about who I'm being and what people think of me or how, what I'm doing in the world. There's such a, such a release of struggle and the potentiality of adapting to a quantum perspective of the world. Oh, that's interesting. I think that's right because if who you are depends on who you're with and who you are is constantly changing, then there's no point defending a particular conception of yourself. Right, right exactly. You know, why hang on to it? It's going to be different in five minutes anyway. So, no, that's, that's, I like that. I hadn't thought about that, but that's, I think, very resonant with the quantum perspective. I'm amazed I could say something you haven't thought about. Your book is so thought out. <laughs> it's well, amazing. it's thought out on one, it's on a technical level. I mean, not, not technical, but the <laughs> philosophy side of it is. But, yeah. but, you know, translating it into, I mean, the reason I wrote the book is because I was dissatisfied with the treatment of consciousness and experience in social science, which is that it has no role at all, basically, in that social science treats people like we're just machines. And I, I just think that's fundamentally wrong and disempowering you know if that's what we're going to teach our kids i would never teach my child oh you're just a machine who would do that right. it doesn't make we do it inadvertently though you do it inadvertently but you would never say you're just a machine right um, that's right. just silly and thinking about the idea of non-locality in relationship to things like the clairs clairvoyant clairsentient mm-hmm. our ability to actually read each other either in the same proximity or at a long distance, because there is no distance, I think, in non-locality. But if we actually had the belief in non-locality, I suspect that that would greatly enhance our psychic abilities. Maybe I'm too far out on that there. No, no, that's interesting. I I was just taking some notes here, and actually I have a couple thoughts about this. Just parenthetically, and this supports what you just said, that if we had more belief in non-locality, it might actually make us more psychic. My understanding is that in Australia, the Aboriginal indigenous people have always claimed to be able to communicate over long distances. Mm -hmm. And that's consistent with the idea that in a sense they were, before the white man came, they were untouched by modern quote-unquote civilization, right? Their minds had not been shaped into this very mechanical way of thinking and maybe peoples that haven't been shaped that way are more able to access our our natural psychic abilities so so that would be evidence for if that's true and i don't know if that's true about the aboriginal peoples but if it is that would be supportive of what you were just saying but personally i've been interested in the clairs as you just put it for a long time um, and i struggled with how to fit them in the book and i decided to leave them out completely except for one reference because clearly that's a, a level of non-locality which goes beyond just language. Right. And it kind of makes the language argument seem not quite so cool or not quite so quantum. If you can actually have telepathy across long distances, that's a whole other ballgame. But I've been very persuaded by, um, you know, Sheldrake's work on, you know, dogs that know when their owners are coming home. And there's a lot of interesting evidence. It's hard to repeat and there's lots of scientific issues, but I think that there is something there. And again, if the brain is quantum, that would fit perfectly. But how that relates to language and kind of regular old social interaction, because most of us are not clairvoyant most of the time. And in fact, it may be that only a few people only once in a while have that ability, or maybe we all have it in a latent form and we just can't access it. And that was your point a few minutes ago. I'd lean on that side. I'm I'm reminded, I just had this thought about... um, when they showed Polaroid pictures to people who were untouched by outside civilization, they showed pictures of, or, or a boat came in. They, 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 all they could see was pixels. They couldn't see the actual picture that was there. And there's instances where they talk about a boat coming into a harbor, but they couldn't see it because it didn't fit into the way they viewed the world. Interesting. And that, of course, operates the opposite way, too, that if we have a belief that you can't do that, which we 
for the most part, do have that. It's almost, you know, children often display it quite early. And then it's like, don't, don't be making things up. That's silly. Right. You right. Know? And so we objectify that and say, that's just your imagination. As if the imagination was limited to only the mechanistic world. Right. Not the right. quantum world. I mean, what kind of imagination would that even be if it's mechanical? I mean, yeah. you turn the crank and you get, you get imaginary thoughts. I mean, that seems... Uh, <laughs> but you're right. I think we do train it out of our children at a very young age. If there's any signs of, of this kind of stuff happening, and that makes sense. It would be threatening to our worldview, I think, to have people, you know, but presumably that's the next phase of evolution then, or something like that. So, And at all levels threatening our worldview at the individual and relational level where there's a great deal of suffering just independently you know with our self-criticism and self-doubt and all the things that go on there and how that affects our behavior in relationship you know we live in a a world that more than half the marriages end in divorce and then there's on the larger scale these so-called nations that we're against and political ideologies that we are against, that they, they would really dissolve if we actually could bring about this kind of quantum consciousness. So good to be with you, Alex. I really enjoyed the conversation. I had lots of fear and trepidation because there's so much that you write about that I completely could not take in in a week of reading your book. It's going to take a few more months for me to even grasp uh, some of the basic points, I think. Well, it was really my pleasure. Great. I just wanted to say one thing, that I used the book for the first time in a class last year, and we read one chapter a week in the seminar, mm -hmm. and I concluded that by the end of the class that the book was too hard. And I couldn't even <laughs> reading it that way. One chapter a week was just too hard. The students couldn't do it, most of them. So well, that makes me feel a little yeah, better. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, I could not teach my own book. So <laughs> I got to work on that. I think, but, but I appreciate uh, the invitation. I, I really enjoyed your questions, and I think you probably understand a lot more of it than you may realize. So thanks, Alex. It's it's really good. I will continue to work on it. This is not. This is not the first stop for me. I mean, the last stop. This is the beginning for me. Oh, great. Good. Well, thank you again. So, Thanks so much for your amazing work, and it's great to be with you. All right. See you later. Okay. Bye for now. Conversations is an independently produced program supported by KVMR 89.5 Nevada City and listener contributions. We are committed to bringing you leading-edge thinking in the areas of environmental restoration, social justice, and spiritual fulfillment. If you would like to receive our complimentary newsletter, The Well of Light, make a contribution, or order any of our past shows, go to our website at arewelistening.net.